Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Welcome back, everyone, to part two of this special episode of Into the Impossible, featuring a conversation between Brian Keating and James Altucher. Don't miss part one. You know, one time I wrote an article, uh, and I forget the exact title, it was something like 10 Things I Enjoy. And one of, uh, one of the items I wrote was uh, uh, melancholy. I like feeling mm. melancholy. <laughs> and people were like, well, isn't that sadness? Like, why would you like feeling that? And yet there's something very special and poetic about melancholy. Like, this is the anniversary of your father's death, which makes you think about, you know, your own children and and perhaps how they will think about you after you die. And, and maybe it reminds you of, of your father and maybe he would like you would have liked to have seen them now like mm -hmm. making a joke when they're so little and whatever and that's a melancholy feeling but it's a really nice feeling and people sometimes think happiness is just one dimensional like hey i want to party now <laughs> but but really it's more it's all this mixture of feelings like like we talked about why aspire to do something difficult you know when you read the nietzsche quote and it's very painful to do something difficult. Think about your own experience. You created such an amazing experiment. Um, I mean, a, a telescope in Antarctica that's goal was to see so far into space that you see the beginning of the universe. Like if that's not arrogance, I don't know what is. Know. <laughs> it's difficult. And then it's painful when you can't achieve the exact results you want, but you still love doing it, even though there's pain, there's just as it's 50% pain, 50% semi good, but you mm -hmm. still do it even knowing that like you would be much happier just sitting on a couch watching TV. And instead you chose to go to Antarctica and build a giant telescope that mm -hmm. maybe it works, maybe it didn't, and you didn't win the Nobel prize, right. and, but you love doing it. And uh, that's the thing we've talked about it in the past, I think. But you know, if you think about this concept of entropy, which most people talk about as disorder or chaos, but really you can think about it as like the number of possibilities. And when you're born, you know, there's like infinite possibilities in a certain sense, but there's no energy. Like you're not organized. You can't do anything. Mm -hmm. Like the baby's got like all these possibilities, but you know, he or she can't do anything. And when you're about to die, like a minute before you die, you've got all this wealth, you've got all this attention, fame, power, but you have no energy and you're, you're about to die. And so you've got maximum entropy again, but you've got no free energy to do anything. So it's somewhere in like where we are and the Talmud like breaks down the different ages of our lives. And, and like when we're in our 50s, it's actually like peak power. It's like maximum utility of, of love, of dollars, of, you know, whatever you know, they call it so back then. That's, that's really fascinating, actually. Like I like this model where at some point in your life where you you still have physical health, but you have resources and you have a support system and you have the, the self-awareness to create the right support system for yourself, that's when you have maximum kinetic energy, yes. let's say. Yes. And the key is to keep the potential energy that you had as a child into your adult years so you can so you can use that you can transform that kinetic energy into potential energy because you can have all these resources and then say you know what i've earned it i'm going to watch tv for the rest of my life exactly and, and then you're not using your potential energy mm -hmm. but if you keep high your your and what is potential energy well it's curiosity it's questioning the world it's being a skeptic and it's and it's falling in love with different activities and exactly. domains and so on so so if you can sort of figure out ways to maximize your potential energy and there's various methods perhaps of doing that uh 
but you know, you could read a lot and get excited about things. You could write down, I write down 10 ideas a day. Mm -hmm. You could meditate on different topics. You could, you know, there's lots of ways to find out what your interests are and combine them and so on and keep your potential energy up. Do you remember what you said in your TED talk here in San Diego in 2014? You said um, a child, you know, laughs like 300 times a day and an adult laughs five times a day. And that I started to translate that into laws of physics. You know, if you think about it in, in terms of entropy, like you have a certain mm. store of happiness. Now convert happiness into, into like energetic terms, like it takes energy to laugh. Okay, but beyond that, like you're storing up, there's like tension. And you know this from your standup, uh, you know, New York and your comedian, like it's stored up tension and then it's releasing tension. That's a form of energy storage. That's a form of conversion and from transformation in one form to another. But then I started to think, leveraging off your idea, well, like I bet it's the other way around too. Like when you're a when you're a baby or you're a kid, you cry three hundred times a day, um, and when you're an adult, you don't cry as much, right? I uh, cry four hundred times a day, but that's now okay. <laughs> I was going to say. But when you're an adult, when you're a when you're a kid, you cry because things make you sad. But when you're an adult, you're you cry more when things make you happy, right? I, I cry when my kids are born, or um, yeah, I cry when my 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 father passed away, obviously. But but when you think about like things that bring you great joy. Um, they they tend to make you really emotional. Uh, at least that that's the way I feel now. And so it's another optimization or energy curve, like where these things intersect. Like the laughter curve declines, but then the the happiness curve, you know, can can rise. And they're expressing themselves in different ways. And then I started to think in another way, like again, how many ways, James, could I double your happiness right now? I mean, how many ways? Like legally, uh, even illegally, like, you know, whatever. You're going to keep, I don't want you to get divorced. You know, whatever. Like, you're not. Like, Robin, she's beautiful. You love her. You're not going to get, like, two Robins. Like, how could I double your happiness right now? You couldn't have more kids. I, I don't know if that would make your life a lot happier, by the way, if you had, like, 10 kids right now. But um, how can I make your life twice as happy right now? Is there, like, just, or 10 times happy? Let's say twice as happy right now. How could you do it? If you broaden out as much as possible, what makes people feel well-being? Let me say well-being instead of happiness. Well, mm -hmm. a sense of community, uh, a sense of mastery, and a sense of freedom. So community we're participating in. We mm -hmm. become greater and greater friends, and we're part of a, a community of podcasters and arguably thinkers, and, and you know we know a lot of the same people. So we're all we're building community, and that feels good, and it makes me happy. And so by having these conversations actually builds our community. And it also builds the community with the people listening to this. A lot of people communicate with you, communicate with me, and they have their own goals and agendas, but I, I enjoy that community too. Mastery is, you know, learning something that's, that you love, that's worthwhile. So, uh, you know, again, mastery is not being the greatest at tic-tac-toe, but mastery might be, I'm going to unify the theory of relativity with quantum mechanics and, and, and moving towards that goal is, is mastery. And that feels good. It gets a huge dopamine hit. And then freedom could mean money or it could mm -hmm. mean lack of a need for money, or it could mean lack of a need for certain types of relationships or a lack of a need. You know, I think freedom has to do more with a sort of minimalist approach to things so mm -hmm. that the things you need to be happy are fewer and fewer. So, right. so I feel all those things I'm accomplishing by talking with you and, and, and having this conversation, you know, and, and, you know, I want to throw another analogy by, uh, by you that is similar to the potential energy and kinetic energy. And of course I'm going to use chess as an example. So in chess, if you're playing chess, you, I forget, you know, you know, the rules to chess, right? Yeah. 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 But, so in chess, there's, there's two types of advantages. I'm ranked negative. I have a negative ranking. <laughs> there's, there's two types of advantages one could have in chess and arguably in life. 
So there's there's what's called static advantages and what's called dynamic advantages. So a static advantage is if I win someone's queen, I'm a queen ahead for the rest of the game. And you can't take away the fact that I'm a queen ahead. That's a static advantage. It's, it's somewhat permanent. And a dynamic advantage is, oh, my king right this moment is safer than the other person's king. So now that's a, a dynamic advantage that's real and it's on the board, but I need to transform that dynamic advantage into a static advantage quickly. I, in that particular case, I need to attack the king because it's weaker than mine. And so he has to, and so to force him to eventually give me something. So mm -hmm. I then convert that dynamic advantage into a static one. So a, 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 an equivalence in life is, I, let's say I really you know, love being an entrepreneur. Uh, I, I might have a dynamic advantage in that I, I have a lot of ideas. I have an idea that no one's thought of. I maybe have some resources where I could raise some money. These are all dynamic advantages, but if I don't use them, they'll disappear. But I can make a company that, you know, using my dynamic resources and convert it into a static advantage by helping many people monetizing my dynamic advantage by maybe selling a lot of products or selling the company. And now I've converted it into a static advantage. Uh. Same thing with writing a book. Many people have great ideas for a great book. They would be the best book in the planet. That's a dynamic advantage because not everyone has an idea for the greatest book ever, but now you have to convert it into a static advantage by sitting down and writing uh, the book. And so in order to do all of this, you have to have some self-awareness, like what am I good at? What, mm -hmm. what resources do I truly have to convert a dynamic advantage to a static? Do I have free time? Do I have love for what I'm doing? Do I have the support of others? And do I have a network to, to bring things to fruition? And so you, you work hard building these dynamic advantages a little bit at a time, incrementally. Mm -hmm. They could be all incremental, small dynamic advantages, but always to move forward, you have to convert dynamic advantages as much as possible into static ones and have a methodology for doing that. Mm. And that's, that's similar to the kinetic energy to potential energy. It's actually maybe even a little more specific about mm. how to do it. I guess I was even thinking at, a, at an even more fundamental level. Like if, I, if you think about like doubling your happiness, that's why I made the joke, like you can't clone Robin or you can't water ski behind two yachts or something like that. But I, I bet you could think of a lot of ways or, or you know, you can't, you know, you, you've got like double the number of, uh, of, of Bitcoin or, or you've four times many books or whatever that you're, yeah, okay. It's, it's incrementally happier, but you know that as, as well as anybody, I don't have to tell you, you know, adding a dollar once you have a certain amount of money doesn't really increase your happiness beyond a certain point because, you know, there's, there are more precious resources than, than actually money. But actually the, the point I'm trying to make is it's, it's just much easier uh, happiness is is what in physics is known as a, as an unstable equilibrium. So in other words, you can you can't you you might be able to be happy in contrast to what Sam Harris would say, or, or even you could become happy without being able to be happy. But once you get happy, there's so many more entropic states of unhappiness. They far outnumber the happy states. You know, for example, right. every single relationship you have could go bad, or just one relationship between a relationship. Let's say two, one of your kids, and with another one of your kids, that relationship could go bad. They could have a fight, and that will percolate to you. And there's there's like n factorial relate ways. You know, let's just say n squared. You have five kids. That's twenty five different combinations. Anyway, there's. We went through the math once before, but the point is there's many more states where James is unhappy than states where James is twice as happy. There's hence many more. The, 
Hence the importance when you have a dynamic advantage that you know will not last forever, like, oh, I have a good relationship with my kid, even more important to convert it to a static advantage. So if you mm. value having a good relationship with your kid, uh, which I do and you do, then, mm. oh, maybe now's the time to take a vacation with my kid or at least make an extra phone call to my kid or help them out in some way or have them help me in some way because that might be a pleasure to them. So always important to recognize that happiness is ephemeral, i.e. a dynamic advantage. And depending on you're getting that ephemeral happiness, uh, how do you turn it into something that's static, that's long lasting mm -hmm. and improves your life in, in a meaningful, long lasting way? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And kids, again, I don't want to, you know, and I'm always thinking about, like, who's my avatar? Like, who am I thinking about? And you talked about this, I think, with James Quandrell and other people on the podcast. Like, who are you thinking about? Or, or that podcaster, Dumas, or one of these guys that you talk, like, who's your avatar? Like, who are you plan pitching towards? Who's the book for? And yeah, you always have to think about that because the worst thing is like, I wrote the book for everyone, you know, or, or my yeah. podcast is for everyone who likes the Nobel Prize and knitting. Like, no, it's going to suck. And everyone's going to hate the hell out of it. But, um, but, you know, I thought about like, you know, so sometimes when I think about it, I think about like Melanie, our mutual friend who we love. You know, she doesn't have biological kids. So that doesn't matter. You know, kids are 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 interesting to me. I've been thinking about this. Like physicists love the concept of of teleportation. We love the concept of time travel. We love, you know, we think about these exotic things like wormholes and black holes and other kinds of holes, maybe. I don't know. I don't want to get into that. This is a clean show. We're doing a clean Twitter spaces here, James. A tight a family project. A tight two hours here. Uh, but the point is. Um, you know, we're obsessed with these things, but I'm like, what if you have that already? What if it's called kids? Let's just say biological, ideological. You can be, you know, a big brother, big sister at any, uh, you know, you can adopt. I don't care. You know, we happen to have biological kids and ideological kids. I teach students. You teach people around the world. You mentor people. Um, you just can't go there physically. In other words, I can take my values and I can teleport them into the future and uh, and I won't be there for it. But but I think we get jealous because we say we want to be there. I want to have my cake and eat it too. And I never really understood, like, what does that mean? Like, the cake is there, but you ate it, but it's still there. Like, it doesn't taste good, like, unless you die. But no, like, you want to be, I think what it means in the context of teleportation for a physicist is we want to, like, instantaneously snap our fingers and appear on Mars. And I'm like, well, what's there on Mars? Is there, like, my office? Is there my podcast? You know, oxygen in my lungs with me? Like, what comes with me? You know, my memories, do they stay here? Do they go with me? Like, it's, it's, so, it's so ludicrous to even think about, just like maybe these UFOs, these aliens uh, that we started off talking about. But, but it's totally dynamic. You can have teleportation. You can teleport your values. You can teleport your wisdom. You can tell, and, and some of it's in the form of a book, some of it's in the form of a child or, or wisdom, and, and some of it are these little messages that you implant in your children, because, you know, one of the, my pieces of advice I give to new parents, um, you know, is the best time to discipline your 15-year-old daughter is, you know, when she's five, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I'm not That's an expert, quote. you know, by now, but, but you know, it's, it's like another thing I've gotten from physics is like, you know, in physics, something that reflects all the light that you send on, it's called a mirror, right? So bounces off, comes back to you. 
Then there's this concept like the cosmic microwave background that I study is called a black body. A black body absorbs and emits all different forms of light. It reflects nothing. It's completely absorbing and it's completely emitting. You look at it, it's completely black. Um, and then there's something that does both, absorbs everything and reflects everything, and that's called a kid. <laughs> in other words, like you do anything in front of your kid, kid is like a hypocrisy detector, a kid is an absorber, a kid is a reflector, and it's just like, I think kids, you kids know- Kids are for, good bullshit detectors. Totally bullshit, you know, it's, but it's, you know, and the question is, how do you avoid trying to make them into your clone, because I don't want my kids to be my clone, and and I you know and 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 how do you make them? Because you 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 don't want to say like oh I learned so much from my kids like you know I love President Obama you know but sometimes you say like oh I learned this thing you know with some world leader I learned that from my 15 year old daughter I'm like I don't want you learning stuff from your 15 year old like like the nuclear launch codes what are we talking about? like what exactly did you learn you know and recently he's talking about these UFOs and stuff like what did he learn you know but anyway um, you know the point is like what what do you want to learn and um, you know from your kids. I think you can learn certain things. You know, they have certain traits, but I always say scientists are like kids. You know, they're curious, they're imaginative, they're creative, they don't play well with others, they're jealous, they want credit, they want funds, they want, you know, it's like, yeah, you, you have to take the good with the bad. Uh, and for me lately, looking at all the, you know, the developments in physics, you know, we're really competing, you know, for this attention, for constrained resources. And lately I've been really kind of, you know, not not panicking, but but certainly worried about things like you know string theory and these theories of everything and and what does it mean? Is it reflective of something psychological in physics that's occurring that 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 physicists maybe are coming to a crisis that we aren't that meaningful? Like you said, we're like modern philosophers. By the way, that's insulting to most physicists. <laughs> I mean, if you tell Lawrence Krauss, who's going to be coming up on my show in the next couple of weeks, if you say like, "Oh, you're like a modern day philosopher," he'll like kick you in the, you know, in the nether regions. Um, most philosophers are not perceived as contributing something useful to physics. I happen to like philosophy, but um, what do you make of this, this, you know, kind of obsession with, with theories maybe that aren't testable or, or, or these biggest picture things? Is it, is it a symptom or is it just, you know, part of the grand tradition of scientists since time immemorial? Well, earlier we said that, you know, 99.999% of people their lives would not change if they thought the earth was flat or if they thought the earth was round. It just is yes. not, does not make any sense. They, they don't care. I don't care if mm -hmm. the earth is flat or the earth is round. Mm -hmm. And I think people have to get used to the fact that it really is all absurd. It's absurd that you went to Antarctica with a giant telescope to detect gravitational waves through the cosmic background radiation and it's ended absurd. up detecting dust and <laughs> ended up detecting dust instead, a dust buster. This is the potential energy of a kid. A kid doesn't need a reason to play in the sandbox. It's just fun for them that moment. We, I think we judge ourselves a lot like on, are we doing something that's worthwhile to society? Uh, is a painter more worthwhile than a bank teller or is a bank teller who gives people money more worthwhile than a painter? I think people get into these questions, but it doesn't matter if I want to, if I want to play poker all day, which is what some people do, uh, mm -hmm. that's important to me. And I might learn how to play better poker, but I also might learn other things about myself. Like I might learn, you know, how competitive I am and how to be competitive in other situations. I might have friends because now this is the way I get to sit around a table with 10 other individuals making fun of each other. Or, or maybe, you know, I make money that I could feed myself with and whatever. But 
a lot of times people say, oh, I feel so bad because I'm doing this all day when other people are, you know, you know, doing brain surgery and saving lives. You know, it just is what it is. Like, I think we can't, I think we have to give ourselves permission a little bit more to go outside of the rules of society. And sometimes those rules say you have to go to college and then go to graduate school and then get a job and you have to make money. So people will like you and you could support a family. Other rules might be, you know, oh, you have to believe in Democrats or Republicans or whatever. But other things might be like, hey, it's it's you it's okay to play a game all day, and there's no there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's it's mm -hmm. just absurd. Like I wonder this because there are some days I play games all day, and yeah. I play in particular in the past few months I've been obsessively playing chess and trying to get better because it feels good mm -hmm. to get better at something I love doing. And uh, uh, sometimes I wonder, well, I've spent the past twenty years or thirty years helping people or starting businesses or writing. What am I doing now? This is like useless. And so what? Like mm -hmm. I'm playing, I'm a kid playing in a sandbox. And every now and then it's like we were saying earlier, it's good to kind of re-energize that potential energy inside of you. Otherwise you deplete it very quickly. If you, if you hate something, again, it requires more energy. So you're going to deplete your potential energy yeah. and, and then you really will be doing something useless. Yeah. That's, I, I've been waiting to ask you about that for a long time, uh, before I do, and I don't want to forget. So first of all, we're talking on Twitter spaces. Usually I'm on clubhouse, uh, the only place on all the internet and any place in the universe, the known multiverse where I have more of a social following than James Altucher. Uh, shout out to people in the room. Uh, Danny Miranda was there. I love you, Danny. Listened to you for months and months. Uh, James Quandrell is there. Jay Yao, super producer to the star. Jay-Z is there. Jay-Z. I don't think it's the Jay-Z, but there's a Jay-Z there. Anyway, we um, uh, we are... Well, that's the uh, real Jay-Z. He's a oh, buddy. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, anyway, um, I want to ask you, James, I've been thinking about this for a lot. Here's a provocative statement that I have uh, been making. I make it to physicists, but I'm going to make it to you in the context of chess. I know that AI, because of you, uh, AI can beat human beings at chess. I don't think AI can create chess. In other words, I don't care if AI can beat us at chess. And obviously, where I care about this is can AI create physics that humans cannot create? But I want to ask you, can an AI ever create chess? And if, so, if not, who gives a crap? Like, why worry about what AI can do? In other words, AI, can, can it create something that human beings will find fascinating for thousands of years? Or is it merely just better at it the way that a steam engine is better than a horse or a human being at lifting heavy objects? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it almost suggests that maybe there's some kind of measurement tool for how intelligent an AI is. So for instance, a car is faster than a marathon runner or is faster than the, fa than the fastest man on the planet. Uh, a car is always going to be faster. Does that mean it's no longer useful to have races in the Olympics because a mechanical car is faster? No, humans still compete with each other. And then there's a next level, which is like with chess, it's been shown not only can you create a, a, a program that plays very good chess, you can create a program that by observing other chess games can learn the rules of chess and then become the best in the world at chess. So Google in four hours, let loose alpha zero on a database of chess games, alpha zero learned the rules just by looking at these games and then became the best player in on the planet. But then the third level is can an AI come up with the rules of a game 
as rich and interesting as chess or poker or bridge or backgammon or, or tennis or whatever, can an AI create those rules? And my guess is, yeah, it's just, I have never known anyone to try that, but my guess is, yeah, an AI can come up with the rules of a game that's interesting by studying all the other fun mm -hmm. games. So let, let's say you gave the, an AI the rules of thousands of games and you labeled some of those games fun and some of those games boring. Then I bet you an AI can come up with the rules of let's say a card game that is more fun than boring. Mm. Um, although that would be fascinating to try. That's a good, that's a good experiment to do. I don't know how to do it, but, but certainly AI people out there know how to do it. But then maybe another level of intelligence is if, if a program is like that, can it, can that same program become a good chef and make good recipes? Maybe, uh, can, can that same program, uh, learn how to recognize objects on the road and then help drive a car. Can that same program design a car mm -hmm. that's better than the car it's currently humans have designed? You know, I think these are all good questions and my bet is an AI can do these things, but has to be specifically programmed to do it. I wonder, yeah, the next extension of that would be, you know, can, can an artificial intelligence create new laws of physics? In other words, you put in Newton's laws and does it come up with the theory of relativity? I don't think so. I don't think that there's such, there is such a creative leap uh, to think about space-time as being a fabric or think about space-time as behaving geometrically, not just thinking about uh, in terms of calculus and variations, thinking about differential geometry. First of all, I mean, by the way, coming up with that from just the laws of, now perhaps you'd get a parabola from observations. You'd have to put in some observations. But uh, there is sort of this this extra special notion. It's almost like you know, would a, would a computer come up with art? Yes, but again, it's that kind of bad statistician that you spoke of earlier. That is what we call machine learning. But uh, computers have come up with good uh, musical compositions after being fed Mozart's works, and have actually you, people couldn't tell if this was a Mozart work or not. Like computers can do this if they're programmed specifically enough and trained on enough examples. And and it's a good question. But would they like, come up with Mozart if they only had, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star? In other words, will they come up with something beyond Mozart, not just like analogous to Mozart? If I think that they'd come up with white noise. I think that they could come up with, you know, like, in other words, would they create cubism from just the, you know, from from uh, the Renaissance masters? Yes. The, my argument is yes. Any, any, all of these theoretical things, um, it, it's like, by the way, it's like quantum mechanics. If we say, can a computer become intelligent? We don't know. But if you suddenly pinpoint the the exact thing you want, then the answer turns into yes. Even though previously it might not have been possible, we don't know. Once you specifically give a specific use case, by, uh, the answer is probably yes, a, com a computer can do that. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, know me and you from the most recent books we've written, you know, you wrote Losing the Nobel Prize. I, I wrote a book called Choose Yourself and a bunch of other books. But the very first thing I wrote, I'll put it in the chat here, is, and I, I forget the title now, it was in, it, it actually was in 1989, and it's called A Mechanically Assisted Constructive Proof in Category Theory. And it was presented at some, uh, the 10th International Conference on Automated Deduction. And what it did was, is that we wrote code that proved a fairly obscure mathematical concept from a basic set of assumptions. 
and using that basic set of assumptions and putting in a final goal that we wanted it to achieve, it, it was an AI that does mathematical theorem proving. So once you give it a goal and you work towards it, it can, it can construct, like if it knows twinkle, twinkle, little star, and it knows the difference between twinkle, twinkle, little star and some musical compositions by Bach or, or some predecessor to, to Mozart, and it understands like, okay, here's how Bach is a little bit more sophisticated than twinkle, twinkle, little star. And then it applies those tricks to coming up with the next generation of, you know, musical compositions. It could come up with something like a Mozart. Mm. Interesting. So yeah, I'm going to tweet that out so that people have access to this because this is really important. I wonder if it's uh, if it's firewalled and paywalled off. I, I can probably no. post it. That's no, not. I, okay, great. So I just ordered is, uh, the book yesterday because I realized they didn't have, I oh, didn't have a, a copy. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow! So this is a whole book. It's not just, uh, it's not just an article. Oh, it's uh, well, been cited twice. Was, was part it's been of cited a... twice. Awesome. You know your H index then is is calculable. You know what H index is, James? Uh, it's how many people uh, cite a paper I wrote, a scientific paper I wrote. It's it's the number of citations that have it, a number of papers that have at least at least eight citations. H citations. It's analogous page rank that that Larry Page invented for uh, World Wide Web searches. So in other words, if you have one paper and has 10 billion citations, that could be like a one-hit wonder. But if you have 100 papers and they each have 1,000 citations, that act to an academic, that's better than one paper with 100,000 citations because it proves that it wasn't just like a one-hit one thing. So your H index, in the case where you have one paper with 100,000 citations, would be one. You only have one paper and it has 100,000 citations. The other case, you'd have, you have 100 papers with 100,000 citations, your H would be 100. So it becomes exponentially harder to add a single digit. So my H index, after you know 17 years as a, as a professor, is only 45. The most renowned professor, Nobel Prize winners that are on my list, they have an H index of maybe 100, 110. So that means they have 110 papers that, or they probably have 500 papers, but only a hundred of them have been cited more than a hundred times. Isn't that That's, interesting? That, so that your age index is probably two and you can find this on Google scholar. I'll, I'll put my Google scholar on and Twitter. So what's my er Erdos number? Your Erdos number. I'd have to, that would take me some time. So it would take me, I bet your Erdos number is larger than your uh, bacon number. Your, your number of degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon. Actually, I interviewed, and you should meet this man, um, uh, not only uh, his advisor, Stephen Strogatz, was a professor at Cornell, where you were a uh, student, but his student, Duncan Watts, was a um, wrote a book called Six Degrees, and it's about what's called the small world theory of networks, that you and I can both get to, you know, either one of us could get to uh, Pope John Paul's, you know, ne great nephew. Somewhere, I don't know. Hopefully, he doesn't have a great nephew. Although, by the way, the word nepotism, you know where that comes from, right? No, it comes from nephew of the Pope, quote unquote, nephew of the Pope. That's so, so when funny. popes would give jobs to their nephews, it was really their children that they had had illegitimately. So that's where that uh, august term comes from. Uh, so but funny. anyway, I wonder. Um, yeah. So, um, so I, th it's, I think it's interesting. I'm not sure. I'm not a sanguine that we could really come up with uh, come up with new laws of physics that that would be really outside of the domain of what a human being could come up with with computers. And it's not for lack of trying. Um, again, I think it's this well, AI what's problem. A, what's the first principle in physics? Let's just play with this for a second. W what are like two or three first principles of physics? Well, so there's the, the applicability of mathematics to physics, which is unique in physics in some sense. Like 
Uh, I mean, computer, you know, comp science or whatever has has math embedded within it. Theoretical computer science is almost pure math, as you know. Uh, but but you know, biology, you don't have to like you know group theory to understand biology necessarily. But to understand quantum mechanics at, at elementary particles, so forth, you do need to understand group theory, topology, um, differential uh, calculus, etc. So that math is the underpinning uh, basis of the model of reality that we associate with physics is a tenant of, of physics. But the problem is there's no, you know, we don't know why that's true. And Wigner called that the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in physics. Well, what, what's an example where, where mathematics translates into physics? So, um, uh, so I'm holding up a coffee cup here. James can see it. You guys on Twitter or on the podcast can't see it, but it has a mug. It's a mug. It has a handle on it. So this object has, a, um, has different properties. It has a handle, which has a hole in it, so if this were made of clay and not baked clay, I could deform it and I could make it into a donut, a shape of a donut. So it has a topological structure. And that donut, uh, but I couldn't make it into a flat disc or a ball without fusing together the whole. And that would change what's called the genus number, the topological character of this mug. And so all things that have one hole in it behave the same topologically. In other words, you can embed, you could put a loop on the surface of this, imagine and putting a tiny little loop of dental floss on the surface of this mug, and you can contract that loop anywhere on the surface of the of the mug except where the handle is, because the hole prevents you from contracting around the handle itself. You can't contract it, right? The handle prevents you from contracting certain loops to a point. So that that means there are certain loops that cannot be contracted to a point. Right. So that's but the, but the laws of topo the rules of topology are derived ultimately from the basics of simple set theory, right? There like are using, simple set theory. Using just simple set theory and applying more and more either restrictions or loosening restrictions, you can start to come up with, you know, group theory, category theory, uh, and, you know, multiplication, division, addition, and on and on until you come up with topology. And so my argument is you give first principles to a computer and you show it how to either restrict or loosen um, you know, the rules in different ways. And then it could come up with interesting theories at least, and then but, maybe prove them or maybe not. But what I was going to get to is that this object here, which is made of matter, say, um, it's not the properties of the matter that are relevant. It's the properties of the topological nature that I described, the intractability, the impossibility of contracting the loop to a point on the surface that's relevant to physics. For example, there are types of objects um, called uh, topological superconductors or topological insulators that um, in certain in certain um, uh, situations, they behave like microscopic donuts in, in, in a sense that you cannot, a currents cannot flow through them or currents can flow through them unimpeded. And they will behave in this way exactly without resistance or with infinite resistance, for example. And they'll behave purely quantum mechanically in a way that you could not predict unless you sort of understood that these are manifestations of something purely mathematical, not a mug, but they're, math, they're manifestations of a, a purely mathematical concept. In other words, if I say to you, James, um, uh, does a triangle exist? You can think of a triangle, but if I say to you, James, what does a triangle weigh? That doesn't make any sense, right? Like, what's the weight of a triangle? You're like, what the hell is he talking about? Like, a triangle of what? No, 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 what does a triangle weigh? You're like, what, what the hell is he saying? Like, he's an idiot. No. But that's like 
that's getting more close to the core of why math is so useful to physics. But then all of a sudden you map on this whole architecture, this whole depth, this whole richness of math, the swagger of mathematics gets mapped onto a physics problem. Only, I think, only a, math, a mathematical physicist, a human brain can conceive of such things. In other words, you wouldn't be able, a computer just seeing millions and millions of, of equations and data sets of, of parabolas and and even even like coffee cup, like it would never guess that oh, actually, you know this this current can be modeled as a as a as a uh, topological uh, superconductor. And then I can say, hmm, what if what if I then had a two handled mug? You ever seen those two handled mugs? Uh -huh. uh, actually, Jews use those on Friday nights to wash their hands. You know, oh, and then a pretzel looks like, and, and then they go through all these machinations, and then those have different properties under uh, certain temperature conditions. And then what if like space and time behave like this? Uh, now, uh, one of my counterexamples is that, well, these laws have been known and computers have been pretty powerful for a long time. And yeah, they can get like Newton's laws, but, but the question is how much do you have to put in? And, and I always say like, you know, they're like, oh, it derived all, it classified like 80 billion galaxies in, uh, in 30 uh, milliseconds. And I'm like, that's great. Did you also account for the six and a half years of the PhD training it took to train the algorithm? <laughs> like, is that part of the 30 milliseconds? Yeah, I agree no, after, yeah. You're, you're right, like that's, like the problem with AI is how much can it do on its own? Which mm -hmm. is when you get into something sufficiently complex, like let's say the human brain, there's no, there's no question AI is not gonna achieve some sort of singularity. It almost doesn't make any sense as a question. If you say, can a computer, recognize if there's a baby crossing the road while I'm driving my self-driving car, yes, it can easily do that uh, now because of the computer processing power and, and- I don't know, it's kind of funny. Every time I go on like some website, you know, CAPTCHA is asking me like, is this a traffic light? Is this like our best minds are trying to recognize like stoplights and parking meters and crosswalks. It's like all AI is being used for is to like reverse the Turing test to prove that I'm, you know, not a computer. <laughs> it's like the opposite of what Alan Turing envisioned. Yeah. No, I agree. This is, AI is not intelligence. It's some sort of, it requires some sort of training on maybe in some cases, billions or even trillions of examples and learn and, and having those examples labeled, like this is a traffic light, this is not a traffic light. And then it builds a, a vector, a traffic light has these nine characteristics. And then it takes a new image and sees how closely does this image match any of the images that I've had billions of examples of in my database. And then it says, Oh, it most closely matches the traffic light vector, so it's a traffic light. Yeah, and so that's, what that's a cockroach all how, can do, right. That's yeah. all how AI works. The mm -hmm. beauty of like chess is that you don't need to feed it new examples. It, once it gets good enough, it plays itself and can generate a trillion examples, and each example is either won or lost. So it knows how to label winning positions versus losing positions. But mm -hmm. with something like a traffic light, it can't generate that on its own. That's why CAPTCHAs, you know how CAPTCHA really works? And I learned this in a, podcast, it's not that you're training, you know, when it says, are you a robot? And it, it then tests you on all the traffic lights. And if you recognize the traffic lights, you're not a robot. No, it's not that it's it, it while you're doing the captcha, it's following your cursor around the screen. And it, is this a, a, a way a human moves a cursor or is this the way an AI would move a cursor? And that's mm -hmm. really how it determines if you're a robot or not. That's mm -hmm. why sometimes all you have to do is click. I am not a robot. And it knows you're not a robot because humans 
have a particular human way of clicking that AI can't beat. Right. Yeah. And can't mimic it. Exactly. Right. They're too good at, at being imperfectly uh, uh, imperfect. Yeah. So what, what do you have uh, next coming up? You said that you had done this uh, kind of like Alexander the Great. You had uh, surveyed the landscape of string theory, of loop quantum gravity, of quantum mechanics with Carlo Rovelli. Come to a theory of everything without me. Cut me out of the credit smartly because you know only three people can win the Nobel Prize. So you, Michio, and Carlo, are, no, no, are no, set I, for Stockholm without me. Thanks, James. No, no, we're going against Michio and and Carlo on this. So, so <laughs> we could you could do all the math part, the hard part. That's what I have people always say to me. Hey, I have a great idea of a story. I just need you to write it, and we'll <laughs> I'll give you ten percent of the profits. I get and, that uh, the Nobel Prize. <laughs> so, quantum mechanics, Carlo Rovelli's theory is that. The reason quantum mechanics work is because it, he basically says that every small particle is only information about it is only interesting relative to something else. So if you're not, if nothing is observing or interacting with an electron, which is small and basically surrounded by huge amounts of empty space, like an atom is mostly empty and the electrons are like one, one millionth part of an atom. So oh, much less than that, yeah. Well, much less than that. So, so you, so if anything at all interacts with that electron, that electron has a location and a speed and uh, relevant to whoever is looking at it. So, like if I'm riding in a train and you're standing still and the train's passing you, we both feel like we're standing still, but 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 the other person is moving, even though we both. But it's but it's because we're only observing each other relative to what is the our context is. So the reason quantum mechanics is interesting on small particles is because small particles have nothing interacting with it until you actually observe it. Mm. Almost by definition, they're so small, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're lonely. Like an electron is lonely versus the atoms in your body. It are, are, you know, they say quantum mechanics doesn't apply to objects that you could see because, mm -hmm. um, and, and nobody's really figured out why, but uh, my argument is, is because your, your, your large objects are already relative to billions of other objects, trillions of other objects, all the other atoms and electrons and so on in the same space. So that's why it doesn't seem like quantum mechanics applies to larger objects. My argument is, is that that's a unifying theory that everything still is always relative to each other. It's just that we think quantum mechanics only applies to small objects because nobody has observed these objects until we observe them. Whereas larger objects are being observed all the time. So they're, their level of interaction relative to other objects is huge, is like infinitely larger than an electron. So we can't measure, we can't use quantum mechanics to measure all those interactions and relativities. Mm -hmm. And so, and then, and then turning it back to where we started with inflation and kind of like self-dealing and stuff, you know, I've come to feel that string theory, you know, which purports to be a theory of everything, which unifies all the forces of nature and physics in a very mathematical uh, language that uh, is very controversial in some sense, but, you know, it was called by Michio Kaku, the God equation. Uh, you notice that he always, he always has to rely on, you know, kind of Einstein being unable to solve it. And then if he does solve it, then he will win a Nobel prize as if, you know, solving it is not its own reward, but, but we'll get, we'll get uh, past that. Uh, but anyway, the string theorists I've come to realize, James, you know what string theory is exceptional at, contributing to what's that string theory string theory well, is perhaps the best theory ever devised to make contributions to string theory 
Well, uh, that that's probably true because it's it's kind of like, hey, let's rewrite all the rules of mathematics, yes. and let's also completely invent an entire series of even smaller particles so that every other thing can be made out of this. And using our new rules of mathematics, it all makes sense. But, you know, but, but, it's, but like, it's so, yeah, go ahead. Th think at a macro level, Einstein's theory of relativity that you know the speed of light is relative to who's looking at it and how fast they are moving. It's the same relativity well the speed of light is fixed sorry i can't i can't let that one go the speed no, of light my, is constant but the but the but the observation of time and distance is relative to the observer right so my, my perception of these things Correct. might be different from yours even though the actual speed through space is constant but uh, my argument is that's the same type of relativity that occurs in quantum mechanics that um i could only view an electron's speed and location if um in the context of how i'm observing it and it's mm -hmm. the same thing with light. I can only measure light based on the context of how I'm observing it. Uh, I can only observe you based on the context of how I'm observing you. Now, we're all going to view you in basically the same way because you're a large set of atoms and electrons and protons and all these things. So they're already interacting with trillions of other things. So it's, uh, it's like quantum mechanics applied to larger objects that are dense has the same rules of basic quantum mechanics, but they're sort of not measurable because it, it, with quantum mechanics, it's easier. I'm only observing, only one particle is being observed by one person as opposed mm. to trillions of particles being observed by everyone. So and your, your loneliness um, kind of an analogy is kind of interesting because to observe something in quantum mechanics, you have to destroy it. In other words, you let's say you're in a room and someone tells you there's a ping pong ball moving around in that room at some speed, some constant speed without friction, and they want you to measure the ping pong ball's speed and where it is. And you can't see it, but you have uh, you have your touch. You can sense it with your fingers. In order to measure its speed and its position, what do you have to do? You have to stop it, right? You have to you have to collapse its position. You have to freeze it in place. Then you know exactly where, where it is, right? Uh, but if you do that, you lose all of its knowledge about its speed. Because you froze it, right? You now you know it's moving at zero speed. You know exactly where it is, so you had to stop it to do that, and you don't know exactly how fast it was moving at the instant it was stopped. Now you can also measure uh, how fast it's going if you kind of like approach it, you know, very slowly and come up to it and then match its speed. But then it has undefined; it's moving still and has no no definite position. But in order to know, you can't know simultaneously at the electronic level, at the quantum level, you can't know both simultaneously at any particular moment. And but, so but my argument is it's the same thing is true for large objects. It's just infinitely smaller, the level of uh, information you get from observing it because you're one among trillions observing a larger object as opposed to a lonely object like a like an electron. Yes. Yes, there is, there is some, certainly there is some, there is some truth to that, that the line I'm trying to make in, in sort of the melancholy, uh, melancholy analogy is that to measure it is almost to destroy it. And you're saying that also applies in the macroscopic world, which is even more depressing, or uh, if you like, <laughs> and the ultimate, the ultimate end is, is, of course, you know exactly where you are and you're not moving anymore when you have no more energy and you have maybe uh, gotten to the end of, end of life and, uh, I've, uh, I've, I've, uh, you know, kind of been ruminating on that perhaps more, more than I should, but I want to ask you, James. Well, you were approaching we, the age of 50, so, I you know, know half it's, a century. It's, I know it's, it's natural to think about it. You know, it's kind of the, 
the back nine, but but uh, but but definitely thinking about uh, you know big picture things. And I want to thank you for inspiring me to to really up my game. Now I've got uh, got sponsors. I've got sponsored by uh, really? Smirnoff vodka. No, no, I'm, oh. I'm sponsored. <laughs> uh, got uh, got some good sponsors, and and uh, but I'm not I'm not doing it for the sponsors. As I said, you know, it's really to to do it to up to be more professional. And that's that's what you said to me a long time ago. You're like they're you know you can have a sponsor but that's to really show that you're worthy of having a sponsor and and to and to really up up the game of of your craft as a podcaster and the only thing i feel guilty with and maybe to close on this note you know for the into the impossible podcast dr brian keating on youtube james altucher show and james altucher on youtube although lately it's it's mostly a, a lot of uh, uh chess streaming which i like but um but we got to up your youtube game a little bit noah would be uh would be a, would be uh, upset if we don't up your youtube although, game although so. noah's a good chess player too so you never he know he is he is <laughs> actually he introduced me to a very good friend of mine here in san diego and he and i he he destroys me in chess on a weekly basis uh but i wanted to say that um yeah so i've been i've been trying to kind of um you know not not to be you know a professional you know podcaster that's not my job my job is uh, to be a professor at uc san diego to co-run the simons observatory to look back to the beginning of time maybe to write some books but i have been making this case lately that as a public employee as anyone supported in the scientific field in america at some point he or she was supported by the by the taxpayers and i feel like it's almost like my moral obligation to give back and I've been doing that with videos, with long form interviews, but now I'm kind of like, I should use my unfair advantage. You know, like I'm at this top university. We've got like this awesome film studio. We have a green screen. We've got a camera crew. And it's all thanks to, you know, this, 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 you know, wonderful setup that we have. And now I can make like educational videos. So I'm doing one on my channel, Dr. Brian Keating on, I did one on, um, on uh, my channel this week with Delilah Gates, Dr. Delilah Gates. She's the second ever African-American woman to get a PhD from Harvard University in physics. It's unbelievable. She is so brilliant, James. Uh, you're going to be blown away. I want I want everybody to check out this video on Dr. Brian Keating. Um, remember where you saw her? She's going to be. She's just like I'm so lucky I got her when I did. But we I added in all these it. animations, and it's like everything you wanted to know about black holes, but you were scared to ask. And she's so charming, so disarming, and so brilliant. Uh, the stuff that she works on, I have trouble wrestling with. I'm just a simple experimentalist. Um, and we're going to have uh, even more stuff like this. So people, let me know what you think about it. Uh, it's, it's linked in my pinned tweet on Twitter, but also um, we're doing more. I'm doing some, I'm going to do a, kind of a battle royale between the kind of rival theories of everything, Eric Weinstein, Carlo Rovelli, Michio Kaku, um, and go deep and try to figure out, you know, what what is going on with these theorists? Why are we talking so much about the God equation, God particle, uh, the mind of God, Stephen Hawking, the big, you know, all these big questions because you know, my dream, James, is now I want to start the, the the free university, you know, that you wish you went to that only thinks about the biggest picture questions in life and that you graduate with no student loan debt and uh, and you can attend in your pajamas. And, uh, and I said that to my son, one of my sons, uh, who's named after my late father. And, uh, and he said, um, Dada, that's redundant. You know, like you said, it's a free university. So, of course, you graduate without tuition. And, you know, so I put him in timeout, you know, he's still, he's still there as we speak, you know, it's like <laughs> these funny. kids, you know, well, anyway, what, James, what, I want to thank you picture, so much. 
Say what's again? another big picture? What's another big picture issue you would uh, teach at this university? So, okay, a theory of everything according to physics. What's another big picture issue? I want people to know that there's more than just the theoretical physics approach to things. People get intimidated by the Einstein factor. I call it the Einstein. You know, people say, I'm no Einstein. Well, uh, Jim Gates, who's Delilah Gates' father, who's a Ford Foundation professor at Brown University. Okay, so she had some unfair advantages, maybe, <laughs> that her father's a super genius. He's the president of the American Physical Society. Uh, he's one of my best friends and mentors. Um, you know, he wrote a book, Proving Einstein Right, and he'd be a great guest, by the way, for you. Mm. But he um, he said Einstein wasn't always Einstein. And in fact, one of the, uh, the, the person, the Nobel laureate, who's writing the foreword, the backward to James Altucher's foreword and think like a Nobel Prize winner, Barry said to me when he accepted his Nobel Prize in front of the King of Sweden, you have to sign this ledger, this logbook. And he looked through the logbook because he's a curious man. And he looked through the logbook and he saw the signatures of past laureates. And he looked back and he saw Richard Feynman and he saw Enrico Fermi wow. and he saw Albert Einstein. And he froze in his tracks and he said, I'm not worthy. And I said to him, Barry, come on. You know, Einstein talked openly about how he felt the imposter syndrome when it came to Isaac Newton. He said, no man had done more for culture. And I quote this in the book and you'll read it, uh, hopefully when you get to, around to writing your foreword, James, but he said, no man has done more for culture, not, not physics, James, for culture than Isaac Newton. And then finally, James, guess what? What's, what's the next thing? So I, uh, Barry Barish uh, had imposter syndrome over Einstein. Einstein had imposter syndrome over Isaac Newton. What's the next question you would ask? I have, I, I, writing the forward of your book, I have imposter no. syndrome with Barry Barish. No, no, no. Well, okay, That's fine. That's true. Well, okay, fine. But who else, uh, who else would you ask about the imposter? Who, who did uh, Newton have an uh, imposter syndrome for? Well, probably Galileo. Well, not only Galileo. Think earlier than Copernicus. that. Copernicus. No. Aristotle. No. No, uh, uh, later than Aristotle. After uh, Aristotle, but before Galileo. Before Copernicus. I don't know. Uh, sometimes considered a scientist, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Well, okay, yeah, Jesus was a scientist because it was it, it, it's, you know, the study of the mind and the soul and 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 me, the existence, you know, starts with religion. And as you pointed out, he gave his life as a ransom for many. You taught that and uh and he he has done many he did experiments. The 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 Bible New Testament talks about the experiments that he did uh to prove things and uh the the the, the Talmud speaks about him. Uh, and, uh, and, and also the nature of proof was very interesting with him. Like, yes. you know, there's the whole story of the doubting Thomas. Like yes. what does, what does proof mean when someone is a skeptic? And without him, we wouldn't have one of the fathers of the scientific method and inquiry, uh, Thomas Aquinas. It's always funny to have two, you know, kind of, you know, in, devout or practicing or curious Jews talk so lovingly and glowingly about Jesus Christ. I always think that's a great a way. A fellow Jew. A fellow Jew and on the eve of Shabbat. And so with that, I think maybe we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. But I am interested, James, in what I want to do in addition to getting this book out. And thanks to you, I think like a Nobel Prize. It should be up on Amazon later this month for pre-order. comes out in September for my 50th birthday. I hope people will get it. Uh, by the time this podcast goes up, maybe it'll be up available. But please subscribe to the YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating, and then James's YouTube channel and his podcast. But the last thing is, um, is really, yeah, just just to what I my my tagline is like from Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, A B C. But it's always be curious because uh, I yeah. think I like in my that. opening of the book, I say 
Um, people say follow your passion, and this is where we started today. Don't follow your passion. F- passion's like a spark, but curiosity is something different. Curiosity, they've done studies, meditation, quitting substance abuse, quitting weight, you know, for, for people that struggle with weight loss. Um, curiosity, investigating, and, and, and why are you having these? That's a much more sustainable uh, urge. And it's unfortunate, as Barry Barra says in the foreword that he wrote, that we have this notion, curiosity killed the cat. It's a negative thing. No, curiosity is one of the most powerful positive forces in the known universe because with it, you can actually launch something that's much more sustainable than the spark that is passion. That's great, but you need curiosity to maintain the rocket ride to the multiverse. I love that. ABC. Always be curious. That's a tagline on my YouTube channel. So check it out, Dr. Brian Keating. James, we love you. I hope I will see you. And someday we'll finish up the how the universe got started. Yeah, we only we, have a few uh, more theories, but I want you to work on my uh, theory, real theory of quantum relativity. That's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> That's right. We got to get it together. And uh, yeah, the Nobel Prizes are coming up soon. Thank you, James. This has been awesome. Thank you, Brian. I'll see All you right. soon. All right. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. We hope you enjoyed listening to part two of this special episode of Into the Impossible featuring Brian Keating in conversation with James Altucher. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.